0: That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said.
1: Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures.
0: Hi, I'm Jay Billis, and my dilemma is binge-watching as a couples event. Uh, I like to watch and binge-watch Netflix stuff and uh, Amazon Prime, you name it. And my wife enjoys watching it together. But after we watch the first episode, uh, I kind of like to keep going. And I can't always wait for her to sit down with me for every time I want to watch something. And I don't think I'm cheating if I move ahead. But uh, sometimes it's taken as such. And I got a problem with that.
1: Oh, my goodness, Jay Billis. Well, this is a dilemma that I can totally understand. I think the key to Netflix infidelity is to make hard and fast rules with your loved one and then to follow them and to have your expectations be realistic. If you watch, say, four or five shows together, ain't no chance you're going to be on the same schedule for all of them. That's just absurd. You need some alone time. You need to find yourself, Jay. You need to be able to be okay with just being by yourself. And so does your wife. So you can't have four or five shows that you require each other's presence in order to continue watching. If you want to binge, you go ahead and binge to your heart's desire, especially with your schedule. where you are going to be on the road and in hotels and in a car service and wherever else. You can watch on your phone. You can watch in your hotel. You should not be limited to only being able to watch the shows you love when you're at home with your wife. So I'd say pick maybe two two shows that you like to watch together, maybe you like to talk about it afterwards, exchange thoughts about the recent episodes, pick two of them and decide that those are the shows that you only watch together. You're not allowed to move on, whether she's sleeping or out of town or whatever else. You gotta wait for her. Everything else is off limits, and any complaints about your cheating on her by advancing the show past where she is will be on deaf ears because you've made a hard and fast rule together that you are only going to be completely faithful for those one or two shows. That's the only way to do it. Trust me, we've tried. The commission has spoken. This week's podcast is a little different. I moderated an awesome panel at the ESPNW Summit this past week in Newport Beach, and I thought a lot of people would be interested in it because it's a topic that is talked about a lot, and I had some incredibly smart people talking about it. ESPN College basketball analyst Jay Billis, sports economist Andy Schwartz, and state senator Nancy Skinner who is the woman responsible for that new California bill, allowing college athletes to monetize their name, image, and likeness. We talk about what the passing of the bill means for California, what it could mean for other states, what effects it might have on women's sports and Title IX, And what it could mean for college sports overall in the future, I got to ask these folks, you know, what's the ideal system and how can we change college sports in a way that doesn't change things that people like about it? What are the possible pitfalls? It's a really discussed topic. And these brilliant minds cut through all the hyperbole all the disingenuous arguments, all the moving of goalposts to get to the reality of this bill and what it would mean to pay college athletes in the future. I really hope you guys enjoy it. And also stick around for a bonus dilemma from a special guest at the end of the pod.
0: That's what she said.
1: Well, I'm so excited for this panel, and so many of you have come up to me saying how excited you are. It is meaty. It is a lot to get to. There will not likely be any dancing, although I bet Jay can cut a rug. But uh, I hope you guys uh, are as into this as we are. So let me introduce these amazing, smart, uh, informed people that are going to help uh, work us through this, this incredibly meaty topic. Jay Billis, ESPN Sports Center and ESPN Radio personality, focusing on basketball. Four-year starter at Duke, played pro overseas, uh, the king of Twitter king of the NCAA clap back. Give him a hand. Andy Schwartz, the chief innovation officer and co-founder of the Historical Basketball League, the first pro college basketball league antitrust economist with a subspecialty in sports economics. Big Julie Fowdy fan. And Senator Nancy Skinner, state senator, author of the Senate Bill 206 the Fair Pay-to-Play Act. Okay, so Senator Skinner, let's start with you. I'm certain that most people here know about the bill, but give us a quick uh, understanding of it and also your impetus for introducing it.
2: What the bill does is give our student-athletes the same rights that Olympic athletes have, and that's to their name, image, and likeness, which, by the way, is a right every single Californian has, and the only reason student-athletes don't have it is because they sign a waiver to the NC2A. The inspiration... My original thinking of it was as a civil rights issue and the exploitation of black athletes. And I had the benefit as a activist student at UC Berkeley to hear Harry Edwards, who organized the 1968 Black Olympic Boycott of the Olympics and, uh, uh, Tommy Smith and uh,
0: John Carlos.
2: Yes, Carlos. Anyway, so originally it was always from the point of view of the exploitation of black athletes and the money that was made off of their talent with an analogy towards slavery. But as time went on, I really understood that all athletes are exploited under those rules and that especially women athletes are really put at a huge disadvantage. So
1: it's interesting you say
2: that because
1: for all the positive response to the bill and the was it essentially unanimous voting on it um there has been criticism um tara vanderveer obviously um one of the queens of of basketball and, and in and in the state um, says there's a real fear that boosters, instead of donating to athletic departments, may donate directly to athletes that they want for their school, that funds may be directed away from women's sports instead of toward the Muffet McGraw, also concerned that this doesn't help women much. So Jay, what's the response to the concerns about how this bill might negatively affect female athletes?
0: I- I'm very respectful of the opinion. I just don't think there's a, a basis for it, an underlying basis for it. Uh, I believe that Athletes having the same economic rights as literally everyone else, uh, will not take away from anything. It will, it'll add to it. And I don't, I don't believe somehow the schools are looking at this, uh, zero sum game and somehow women and women's sports will be heard. I know Larry Scott, the commissioner of the uh, Pac 12 came out and said that. And one, I don't believe there's a basis in economics for that. The other, the other thing is I, I find it insulting that. Uh, there, and I'm not talking about just, uh, Muffet McGraw and Tara Vanderveer here, but just sort of the, the NCAA response that somehow women's sports is dependent solely on the profit of men's sports. I don't believe that. And I don't believe that one segment, yeah, I don't believe that's our commitment. And I don't believe that, that one class of person, that this entire multi-billion dollar enterprise teeters upon the athlete remaining amateur, especially uh, for a different definition of amateurism that under the NCAA, uh, definition, it is literally whatever they say it is at the time, and it changes over time.
1: Yeah, we're going to get into how the definition changes and therefore reveals itself to be flawed in a little bit. Um, what does this mean for recruiting, do
3: you think? Well, um, I think that we're in a situation now. I think the most important thing to recognize is that anytime you hear anybody saying that providing a better market for athletes is going to change competitive balance. It's almost certainly false, and it might be intentionally false. It's, it's, it's hard to know people's motives, but since the very first paper in sports economics in 1956 by Simon Rottenberg showed that the reason that the Yankees won all the time, and they did back then, unlike this decade. I'm from Boston, yes. Um, <laughs> um,
1: first decade in forever, right? Yeah. For, Without a World Series appearance, so sorry.
3: Was had nothing to do with the reserve clause, which was the pro sports equivalent of the NCAA's uh, scholarship cap. Now, the athletes could make some, but not what they were fully worth. And schools had the ability to prevent them from switching and, and making more. And that essentially, and this has gone on to be developed into a broader thing. It started in sports economics, it broadened out into general economics, which says essentially that caps like that don't preserve balance. So People are like, well, Kentucky will get, Kentucky and Duke and North Carolina will compete for all the five star basketball athletes. And Alabama will get all the best football players. But they do now. Already, yes. And they do it with mechanisms that are really inefficient and that aren't subject to Title IX, like, like they pay their coaches. And since Marianne Stanley lost her case against USC, coaches pay is not subject to Title IX, but athlete compensation is. So in a world in which we make sure Title IX is enforced, what we'll see is the same level of, of recruiting, the same competition, but it'll actually, I think, raise the funding towards women's sports.
0: And every time you hear doomsday from <laughs> whether it's NCAA administrators or school administrators, which are, are one and the same, you have to look back, I believe, and, and how many times they've predicted doomsday in the past. Like in 1984, uh, the, we had the Board of Regents case where the NCAA used to tell institutions how often they could be on television – and that was challenged by Georgia and Oklahoma. It went all the way to the Supreme Court. It was a 7-2 decision that deregulated. And you had NCAA administrators that came out and said, this will destroy college sports. It will destroy non-revenue. It will destroy football. It will destroy everything. And it elevated it to heights that no one ever thought. Yeah, and Doomsday is always yeah, around yeah, the corner. Same goes
2: for the Olympics, right? Wanna, same thing. I want to get back to Title IX for a minute. So Title Nine has been fantastic. And it has brought up women's sports. When I was in grammar school and high school, there was basically no sports for women. My youngest sister was the beneficiary of Title IX, went on to be a great soccer player, and was on the first U.S. women's team to play in Europe. But under Title IX, even with all of the advances we've made, recruitment dollars, campuses still spend only 35% of their recruitment dollars to recruiting women athletes. Scholarship dollars, more, 60%, go to the male athletes. And the total operations dollars, even under Title IX, 65% go to the male sports. So Title IX, we need it and we want to enforce it, but we do not have gender equality in sports.
3: And just, just one more thing. The biggest opponent in 1974 when Title IX was being questioned whether it would apply to sports was the NCAA. And you can go back and read the predictions that Title IX would destroy college football. And it's the same rhetoric you'll hear about SB 206 that you'll hear about any effort to essentially shift the balance from coaches and administrators to athletes is to, to try to divide men and women athletes.
1: Yeah. So Victoria Jackson, uh, who was actually at the summit last year, she's an ASU sports historian, professor, a former NCAA champion, writes a lot about how we use gender justice as a protective shield to excuse racial injustice and uh-huh. our push to make sure that we are equal to female athletes, ignores the fact that we are not treating, especially African-American male revenue-driving athletes, uh, we're not allowing them to reach their opportunities because we're using the idea of this idyllic experience, which she talks about her own. She went to UNC, she got to go to class, she got to pursue whatever academics she was interested in, she got free school, she traveled, she got her PhD and went on to go pro. She had this experience that we hold up as the ideal. How does this bill and what may come after it affect differently female athletes at schools and revenue-driving top male athletes, many of which, the majority of which, are African-American?
2: Well, essentially, the bill really is on the student to promote themselves because it just gives them the, the right to their name, image, and likeness. So who it benefits and how much it benefits is a lot going to be dependent on the student. Now, clearly, there will always be a handful of elite athletes who potentially will gain more, but it really is a lot on the ability, the, or the willingness of the student to utilize their name, right, and uh, name, image, and likeness. But on the issue of the civil rights, as I said, that's where I started from, and it is absolutely the case that our African-American athletes are driving much of the revenue of the sport. But to notion that for women athletes, their college experience is idyllic is just to me patently false because it is when you're in college right now, currently under the sports milieu because of the basic lack of opportunity to go pro as a woman, that the spotlight is on you. And when your value in terms of economic terms is the highest. And yet, under the NC2A rules, you're completely forbidden from being able to gain any of that uh, value other than your college scholarship, for which the majority of athletes don't even get.
0: Essentially, amateurism, not essentially, totally, amateurism doesn't provide anything of value to the athlete. You know, no athlete is a better player, a better person, a better student by virtue of their amateurism. So I have been arguing for years, actually since I was in college. I was a when I was in college in the 80s. I was a member of the NCAA's long-range planning committee, and clearly we didn't do a very good job. Look look what we've done. Uh, But I've I argued back then up until now that amateurism does not exist in NCAA sports. That amateur sports don't make billions of dollars, don't pay coaches millions of dollars, don't have multi-million dollar apparel deals, don't have multi-billion dollar media rights deals. Uh, it's not amateur in any way, except in how the athlete is treated. And you can't take, in my view, you can't take one segment of a multi-billion dollar industry and say you get enough, and try to justify it by saying, "Well, look what we give you. We give you a scholarship. We give you this opportunity for an education." I'm not argue. That's great. That's terrific. But but
1: why it, cap it there?
0: Why cap it there? And why why is education and money seen as mutually exclusive to an athlete only when a non athlete on scholarship isn't viewed as being paid for being at school? And a musician, they can a dancer, you name it, can go oh. out and write a book, do whatever they want. My and, daughter was an artist in school, sold her work, she was celebrated for it, and the NCAA is saying, well, if my daughter were an athlete, she would have been an employee of the university by virtue of the fact that she succeeded in the marketplace, and that's that's patently absurd.
2: Well, and any other student who had a hundred million YouTube viewers would have monetized mm-hmm. those viewers. Uh, so look at Caitlin was completely forbidden from doing that. She would have been expelled from her ability to be on that. As she talked her joy moment that last year at UCLA in the NC to a uh, team championship. So she could not monetize her YouTube viewership. Or her Perhaps. poetry, which is wholly unrelated.
1: We'll be right back with more That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. The holidays are approaching and you may be thinking about how you're going to save some extra money. Well, I've got a way that maybe you haven't thought of. Consolidate your high interest credit card balances to a lower rate and save with Lightstream. Get a rate as low as 5.95 APR with autopay. Plus your rate is fixed, so as the rates continue to rise, your low rate won't budge. There are no fees and you can even get your money as soon as the day you apply. Lightstream believes that people with good credit deserve a better loan experience, and that's exactly what they deliver. Just for my listeners, apply now to get a special interest rate discount. The only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com slash Spain, L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash S-P-A-I-N. Subject to credit approval, rate includes .50% auto-pay discount. Terms and conditions apply, and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com slash Spain for more information.
0: That's what she said.
1: The Women's Sports Foundation is still trying to figure out its stance on this bill and what it might lead to, but one of their concerns is the resources to regulate it. Will that be taken out of funding for women's program? Will it, you know, deduce the number or quality of women's sports? How do you react to that concern?
3: Well, so um, recognize, I guess, the space that that concern comes from. I think it's a recognition that the NCAA is not going to let athletes, male or female, actually exercise their rights, that they're going to restrict them in some way because no one says to um, Coach K – Gosh, I don't know if State Farm is paying you a market rate for your ads. We better check to make sure it's not an under-the-table payment. But that's essentially what the concern here is. here, is that in order to allow athletes to go out into the market and commercialize a YouTube channel, we have to make sure that boosters aren't going and clicking, yes, 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 I like it, I like it, I like it, a lot. But we don't say that to anybody else. And so I don't blame them for being worried that the NCAA will screw it up. Um, <laughs> But that's an important thing, and that's some of the reason why, you know, I was introduced here as, as one of the founders of the historical basketball league. We don't think the NCAA really can get there, but we, we can talk about that at some point. The, the real thing to recognize here is that, Jay said it, athletes, male and female, are not being given anything. They are earning it. They're earning their scholarships. They're earning the right to be in the marketplace. And we should ask, why is it that the NCAA can come in and say, well, you can do that, but only under these conditions?
1: And, Jay, I think we spoke about this before. Um, Money arrives from somewhere for every other thing that they want to regulate. This doesn't necessarily change that they somehow find ways to you know, regulate everything else without it taking away from programs. Well,
0: yeah, it's essentially college sports is being presented to us as a zero sum game, that there's only a certain amount of money and every dollar that's that's uh, that's spent is taken from somebody else uh, or some other area, which is, is simply untrue. It's unsupportable. And so when I was in college back to the 80s, if I had stood up, you know, they used to trot us out and, and speak to an alumni group every once in a while. If I had spoken to an alumni group at Duke in the 80s where I went to school and said that, you know, someday you're going to pay this basketball coach, Mike Krzyzewski, nine, ten million dollars a year. I think everybody would have said, we'll never do that. That's not what college sports is about. That's not what we're about. Um, we would never do that. And not only were we doing it, they're trying to pay him more so they can keep him longer. Um it's a business and it's okay. There's nothing wrong with the coaches making all this money. But the idea in, in the but my question would be why don't we ask these questions in other areas? Why don't we ask uh when a multi multimillion dollar facility is built, well wait a minute, what's that gonna do to other sports? Are we gonna have to cancel sports? What you know, what is that gonna do to women's sports? We never ask that. When a coach is paid an exorbitant amount of money, what what's gonna happen to other sports? We only ask it in the context of the athlete. Right. And and that's that's maddening to the point of infuriating to me. Well,
1: we don't ask questions about stuff like graduation rates and GPAs right. getting bonuses right. for coaches which right. just incentivizes academic fraud. We don't ask where's why are they getting more money for people to when we know that their ideal, you know, goal is for them to succeed athletically, not academically and that a lot of them don't even graduate. So by giving them extra money for higher GPAs, you're just presumably telling them to make sure that their athletes are taking easier courses and succeeding in them, whether they actually are or not.
2: Great well, point. some of the students that came and testified in the uh, state, California state legislature, when we were hearing the bill, they said, you know, really it's a misnomer. We should be called athlete students um, because so much of their whole student experience is dictated or governed by their, the time they must practice, the time they give to the team. But I, I think this thing of regulating I mean, we don't regulate the free market exercise or the free market value of any other category of students. So why should we put this on... The student athlete, and I would submit, it's primarily because of the fear by NC2A or the colleges that somehow this is going to cut into their revenue. But I think that's a rather a narrow view of the pie. Um, on the origin of the bill, what I didn't mention is while I had been thinking about this rights of student athletes for years, and I hadn't really thought about it as name, image, and likeness, I didn't really know that a state could act. And actually, I heard. Andy, give a talk, okay. and uh, at the end of it, I was running for the state senate at the time, and at the end of it, I went up to him and I said, so Andy, is this something a state could affect, or is this something that we can only do nationally? And he goes, no, no, the NC2A's own rules say they must follow state law, and we could affect it through mm-hmm. state action. And I said, all right, if I get into state senate, I'm going to do something about this. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. So this California bill... Um, the Ed O'Bannon case, the
1: FBI investigations, there are all these pieces kind of concurrently happening that feel like they might lead to a sea change. And we often say this, right? Little things yeah. happen and we say, oh, NCAA amateurism is a fraud. It's going to be overturned. And somehow they weave and bob and find a way to defend what they've always done. It feels to me like we're piling things up to a point that very soon there will be a change. Jay, how likely do you think that is in the coming years? And after that, what model do you think is the best to replace the one that exists?
0: I think change is likely. I happen to believe it's inevitable. Uh, but it's going to be incremental. Uh, there's not going to be a time where the NCAA says, okay, we give up. Uh, let's, let's open this up and, and run it like the business that, that it is and let athletes, you know, sort of compete with everyone else in the marketplace. I think they're going to continue to fight. Uh, uh, and they've proven – the NCAA has proven over the years they'll spend any amount of money in litigation to preserve uh, what they call the collegiate model, which makes no sense. There's, um, there's
3: always enough money when it comes yeah, to,
0: to the legal piece. They're not worried about that. There's plenty of money for litigation and lobbying, which they spend an enormous amount of money in lobbying, not only in states but on uh, Capitol Hill. Now, what do I think it should look like? Uh, I think it should be an open, free market. Uh, and I think athletes should have the same rights as literally every other student, every other person. And if they, if the school wants to enter into a contract with an athlete, uh, I think that's fine. And I think that would be just good business. Uh, but you know, then you'll hear the NCAA, it's really funny. On one hand, the NCAA folks say, uh, well, the value is really all in school, and uh, very few athletes, maybe 2% uh, would have value in the marketplace, which is crazy talk. Yeah. Uh, there would be a, a ton of value in the marketplace among athletes, male and female. But then on the other hand, they say, hey, if we open this up, then we're going to have bidding wars for talent. <laughs> like, how can you have bidding wars for something that has no value? Yeah. You know, they know, <laughs> the NCLA knows that the most important factor in winning is talent acquisition. Right. They absolutely know that, and, right, and they're proving it in their spending now. They're building gigantic facilities to attract talent, and that is an inefficient way to run this business. So I think it's going to change, but I think we'll go name, image, and likeness first, and it won't go near far enough, but we'll see incremental progress toward athletes having the same economic rights as everyone else.
2: We have 15 states now that have either introduced the bill already or have held press Conferences that they 're going to introduce the bill, so while i don 't expect the nc two a they 're supposed to release something before the end of october i don 't expect any big significant change from NC two a but the states will do it, and uh, then they will have to change
1: so let 's talk about the ncaa 's defense of amateurism and you just pointed out one example where they have to defend it one way against one thing, but then the reaction changes when it 's in defense of something else. How have you seen them react to changing arguments and try to stay with their defense of amateurism?
0: Well, I, I mean, I don't – Andy, you correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think our argument has changed. Yeah. Our argument has <laughs> been the same from the very beginning and, frankly, since the 1980s. Their defenses have changed and their, their quote-unquote, justifications for the system. So – I would think that if you were trying to justify amateurism, you would say that we believe in the principle of amateurism and the values that it it has and what it gives to the student and to the enterprise. And that's the end of the discussion. When they start saying, well, women's sports are going to be hurt, and we're going to have this problem, and boosters are going to be a problem, and this and that, then they're talking about individual symptoms that have nothing to do with amateurism. And so, to me, raising this issue, as we have over the years... I would think, like, I don't ever feel bad about discussing policy. My job would be a lot easier if I could just be a cheerleader for the sport because the truth is most fans don't care. They want their games, and they don't really care about conference realignment. They don't really care whether the athlete gets what they do. They want their damn games, and that's fine. But when we are going to talk about policy, CAA should be able to justify their own policies, and I don't think they can. And I think that's being borne out now, and the courts are catching up with it. Uh, government is catching up with it and, and their support for their justifications, such as they are, has eroded significantly.
3: If I could do a little antitrust economics just for a second. The core legal basis is an economic basis for why the NCAA says the same antitrust laws that apply to everyone else that says universities can't get together and fix professor prices, but they can get together and fix athlete prices, not just how much, but how many. Uh, athletes can get scholarships, and that affects women a lot, the, the scholarship limits in terms of the number, is the premise that no one will watch college sports if the athletes get compensation. And so that has been an enduring thing. I, start, I didn't come to this in the 80s. I, 1999, I wrote a paper. So I've now been 20 years that I've been studying. That has been an enduring claim. But the definition of the line across which people will stop caring, it just keeps moving. From 1976 to 2015, it was against NCAA rules, even if a school wanted to, to provide a stipend to cover the additional expenses that are the gap that people call cost of attendance. Things like uh, travel to and from home before and after uh, the school year, having a car on campus, toothpaste, things like that. It was against the rules. You couldn't do it. Why? Because if we give that, no one will watch college sports. Well, they changed the rule after a court encourage them to by saying, if you don't do it by the end of this year, we're going to make you do it. They, they rapidly did it. Has anyone changed their college sports consumption over that? Because we were told in 2006, 2008, 2013, if this happens, no one will watch college sports. And so like whenever we can test it, it turns out it's just a justification. But then they say, oh, 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 oh. well, now we're right. Now if we go a dollar beyond this, if, if Senator Skinner's uh, 2003 deadline comes and athletes start earning side money, no one will watch. Right. And, and I just don't think that's true. I mean, I feel like if anything, people would watch – Stanford swimming more if Katie Ledecky hadn't been forced to choose between making money and staying on campus yeah
1: Yeah. well and it's it's the same as the Olympics right nobody is less invested in Olympic success of people because they can afford to eat while training right um so I guess you know you mentioned the idea of just make it a free market so if say Duke wanted to pay Zion Williamson $3 million over a two-year contract. How do you reconcile that with Title IX?
0: Well, and Andy can speak to this probably better than I can, but uh Title 9 doesn't say that pay has to be exactly the same to everyone. It's more it's obviously participation, but it's also the amount of money that's spent on the men's side and the women's side. So it, you don't have to pay the the women's basketball coach the exact same as the men's. Player. Yeah, things like that. Well, but just oh, like that. Yeah. So so it, and coaches' salaries has been proven in court that does not apply in Title 9, but if you if you took the example of Zion Williamson and, you know, Caitlin Ohashi going to the same school. You don't have to pay the same amount of money. You can if you want to, but you don't have to. So it's you not have
1: to give those resources across women's sports in some capacity. The
0: way I read the case law and the way I read, uh, read Title IX. Yes. But to me, like I say, open it up and then let's make the universities comply with federal law. It's really not this hard. And it's amazing they can circumnavigate this entire multi-billion dollar business and make decisions without asking. Like they don't wake, they don't wake up in the morning going, what are we going to do today? Do we pay the head basketball coach the same as the landscape professional? How are we going to, how are we going to put this game on? You know, it's so complicated with athletes, but it's not complicated with their 30,000 other employees that they can make those decisions. These schools know exactly whom to recruit and exactly whom to put in the game when they need to win. They know all that stuff. They know what everybody's worth. And if we really believe in education, and this is what frosts me more than anything, if we really believe in education, why would we tell any young person, whether it's Katie Ledecky or Zion Williamson, why would we give them the Heisman and say, nope, we don't want you in school if you want to make money? that that we don't say that to any other student or any other person and i find it it really infuriating that we do that with an athlete we're we should be inviting them to school
1: well and why isn't there a lifetime scholarship so that if they do go pro and they haven't graduated they can't come back 10 years from now and get the degree and the education that they claim to have been given when they instead had 50 to 60 hours of practice and were limited in what kinds of classes they were allowed to take
3: yeah so larry scott recently echoed that exact theme he said look Senator Skinner wants people to make money. There's an option for them. Just don't come to college. So as a contrast, to promote my, my sport league for a second, the historical basketball league, what we're trying to do is reinvent college basketball. So our athletes are going to play in the summer, which minimizes the amount of conflict between – they'll practice some in May. They'll do strength and conditioning during the school year like any good fit person does, but they'll be students for the school year. In the summer, they will be professional athletes – and they will be able to bank their scholarship so if they're lucky enough to be and skilled enough to to leave our league and go to the NBA before they're done that scholarship sits there and it's available for them to come back it's we're essentially f- taking a look at the approach and saying why do we have to do it this way and so some of the some of the answer is is because the people in charge right now my favorite My favorite California quote of all times is from Upton Sinclair. It's difficult to convince a man, get get a man to understand something if his salary depends on not understanding it. Mm. And so the complexity that you hear from people who right now earn some of their salary by skimming off the athletes is a self-interested concern. And what we're essentially doing is we're turning it inside out. Our athletes are our primary value. We will not succeed if we don't recruit elite athletes, and we're going to pay them accordingly.
1: Back with more That's What She Said with Sarah Spain in just a minute. Hiring can be a slow process. Cafe Alturo's COO, Dylan Miskwitz, needed to hire a director of coffee for his organic coffee company, but he was having trouble finding qualified applicants, so he switched to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Its technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. So you get qualified candidates fast. Dylan posted his job on ZipRecruiter, said he was impressed by how quickly he had great candidates apply. And he also used ZipRecruiter's candidate rating feature to filter his applicants so he could focus on the most relevant ones. That's how he found his new director of coffee in just a few days. With results like that, it's no wonder four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. Try ZipRecruiter for free. In our web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash said. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash S-A-I-D. ZipRecruiter.com slash said. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire.
0: That's what she said.
1: Tim Tebow was on, uh, I believe it was First Take, and very passionately argued that this bill and changing the format of NCAA will ruin things, that the reason that people like college sports is because they're amateurs, because if you pay them, then it's just like
2: professional sports. What do you respond to that? Same argument they used on the Olympics, and yet you still see the Olympic viewership up uh, in those sports that people are attracted to watch, so why would he argue for that? Why would Tim Tebow
1: argue on behalf of continuing to prevent people like him and others from
2: making money it 's a romantic myth, but you all may have
0: some people really believe it, and that 's fine um, and i think I think it should be instead of being on the athlete as annie mentioned to to make the false choice of college as a restricted amateur in a multibillion dollar business or Putting aside your education to pursue your your field of choice professionally, that, that's a false choice that I don't think anybody else is ever asked to make. Yeah. But, you know, Tim, like, I respect the opinion, but I think the real choice is, is on the schools. Like, if you don't want to compete in this multi-billion dollar business, then don't. If you don't want to pay your players, then don't. That's fine. That's what choice looks like. Right. And then see how that works in the marketplace. If you want to provide a scholarship only, the Ivy League has operated for a long, long time. Things yeah. have changed uh, lately. They operated for a long time without scholarships. That was Don't their I choice. Know <laughs> but that was their choice. do my
1: parents know it, actually.
0: University of Chicago yeah. <laughs> had the first Heisman Trophy winner, Jay Berwanger. And they decided to get out of big-time athletics. That's their choice. The choice shouldn't solely be on the athlete. And we shouldn't say every time we are we have a concern over, well, what is this going to do to women's sports? What is this going to do to run non-revenue sports? What is this going to do? So the athlete's carrying that on their backs, too. Right. Like, boy, I better remain an amateur because I don't want women's sports to go away. Like, that's, that's nonsense, and there's no analog they can point to to say, see what happened there, this is going to happen here. There's no basis for it in economics or
3: in, in, in the past in any sport. There are twice as many D2 and D3 schools, and they are not supporting their women's sports with football profits.
2: Yeah.
3: <laughs> they do it because the school thinks it's a valuable thing, and because, in part, because of Title IX, which helps make sure they remember that, to have <laughs> sports on campus, to have women's sports on campus, in Division III, people schools use, use their sport to attract boys becoming men because, because my gender is getting dumb about education and they want to just come and play football. Um, the, the idea that schools, let's put it this way, if the only reason a school is putting on a given sport, whether it's a, a men's lacrosse team or a, a field hockey team, is because they have leftover money, that they've taken from male athletes and they don't know what else to do with it, that's a really dumb reason for that institution to have that sport. It's like we don't actually want it. We don't want to pay for it. But if you give us free – if you let us take someone else's money, we'll spend their money. And so I think that's the thing to think about is like if someone says to you – I went to Stanford. I love Tara VanDerveer." If someone says to you, I'm afraid that if we allow athletes to commercialize their image – they will get money that we won't get. That's an admission that you're getting their money now. Right. Yes. It's just your rule that's preventing them from earning what they're worth.
1: Right. And that's yes. what I didn't understand about the criticism is I don't think this will help women much. Well, it might help some. It might help plenty. Yeah. But also that's not why you do something yeah. because you're still restricting right. people who it will help. I, so, I also, you know, Doug Godley was uh, saying <laughs> that, um, and you mentioned this before, the talent individual individually without the name of the school means nothing, which I think is false. It's a symbiotic relationship in the same way that if you have Adele and she's on an indie record label and not as many people hear her, she's still very talented, but she needs a bigger record label to get more people to see her. The same way Zion needed Duke, but Duke also needs Zion because if Duke sucks, it doesn't matter that much that they're Duke anymore. And that's why teams can come in. And you mentioned Gonzaga as a perfect example of a place that You know, Gonzaga isn't anything unless they keep making the tournament and then people want to go there because, oh, I recognize the name and that's a basketball place and that's fun.
0: Yeah, a couple things. One, we hear that argument all the time that the value is really in the brand and in the school and the player. Who would the player be without the brand? And, of course, the brand of the school is valuable, but the brand of the player is, too, because if you took that same argument and you applied it to coaches, it should apply equally to coaches and say, well, wait a minute, the brand – is in, is in the NCAA and in the school. So why would we pay Coach K $10 right. million dollars a year when the brand is in school? That, that's an absurd. You can make the same argument with us in ESPN. What would we be without ESPN? Yeah. But you're still being hired to do that's a certain job what and at F- a certain level. What
1: is ESPN if it loses the talent?
0: Right. And so your point about Gonzaga is a really good one that it's not – college athletics isn't just about revenue generation. It is also about institutional advancement. Yeah. So these universities are using athletics to advance their universities, certainly make money, increase their visibility, uh, allow them to hire better professors. They can be, become a more selective university, rise up in the US News and World Report rankings. That, that is accomplished through athletics a lot. And the example of Gonzaga is in the late 90s, Gonzaga University was very close to actually closing its doors on the entire university. Uh, in 99 Gonzaga went to the elite eight and followed that up with 20 straight years of unbelievable performance in basketball, which lifted the entire university. And now it's one of the hot institutions, certainly in the West coast and maybe even the country. And so that's an example of, and, and all these schools are doing it and there's nothing wrong with it. Using athletics to assist in education or in institutional advancement is great. But with all the money that's being made now in this multi-billion dollar industry, isn't it remarkable how expenses have risen to the exact level <laughs> right. of, of revenues? Right. I mean, it's remark, it's an, it's an economic marvel that that's happened. <laughs> yeah. And so much of the money when they we say, well, it. we started yeah. this fiction easy, that the athletic departments have to be self-sustaining. Right. So what happens is the university's athletic department is taking their money and they're paying it To the university university. and then claiming they're taking it from their right pocket, putting it into their left and going, look, we don't have any money in our right
3: pocket. We're not making any
0: money off this and people buy it. It's
3: nonsense. I want to share the, the magic superpower of all economists is a concept called revealed preference. If you see somebody in the world who has two choices and they pick one over the other, they liked this one better than this one. So if Duke is all of the value. Or if Gonzaga, the name is all of the value, and there is there is no rule that says you have to give any scholarships in men's basketball. If schools could save money, supposedly, although they may just be paying themselves, and just bring on some walk-ons, they would do it. If that was better for the university as a whole. And yet, you see every single school using 12 or 13, that's the most scholarships that they're allowed to use, every single year. And so, when anyone tells you it's just about the, the the name on the jersey, imagine me being on the floor for the team. I'm five foot seven and a smidge, and um, and I'm bad at basketball. And no one's going to watch me in in whatever uniform you put me in. And you put Zion Williamson on a on a YouTube channel in a pickup game, and people will watch that. Of course, there's joint value, but but yeah. you have to recognize that that it's BS.
2: I want to go back to the value to women. Um, so you look at Olympics. And what are the most popular, highest-viewed Olympic events? Women's gymnastics, women's figure skating. So it's women's sports. And yet we still have this situation where, whether it's in the pros or in college amateur, women are not promoted to the same level. They're not given the media Dollars, they're not given the operation dollars. They're not given the scholarship dollars. When the male-dominated sports uh, establishment, whether it's media, colleges, pro, what have you, is only focusing on promoting the men, we say that, well, the public doesn't like women's sports as much. Until we have equally promoted women's sports, that's the only time we'll really know it. And Title IX has not done that yet. <coughs> so SB206, right to your name, image, and likeness, gives the women... The ability not only to promote themselves but by virtue of that promote their sport and maybe bust through this because we still have a situation for example besides the wonderful example of Caitlin, Diana Taurasi the Yukon basketball player now WNBA her jersey is still the highest sold jersey at the Yukon uh, store she doesn't get a dime from it her value at the WNBA is lower than it was when she was at Yukon. so we we need to give women the ability to bust through, and we need to support them to bust through because hopefully it'll be the game changer for it's
1: softball, the, the fastest growing sport. The professional leagues just don't nest any opportunities for eyeballs. Is when it's on ESPN every yeah. day for the World Series, and there's any number of you know smaller examples of you could put on a camp. And make right. money off of that. Where yeah. the people in your specific area may think that you're the greatest women's lacrosse yes. player ever. And it might not yeah. play nationally, but in your area, you've got tons of cred that you can make money off right. of. Personal
0: okay. appearances, right. you name Great. it. But I'll it's better. also when the NCAA says, again, it's a zero-sum game, they try to paint it as a zero-sum game saying, you know, if the athlete makes something in the marketplace, that's money taken from, from the institution. That's another, I, I believe... Lie, frankly, and if you allow name, image, and likeness rights to the players, then the universities can decide how to use the player likenesses with their marks and market their own teams. Right. So sure. there'll be new revenue streams coming, and if the NCAA and all the member institutions, I'm, I'm, you know, putting it under that umbrella, if the NCAA has shown anything in the past, they are
3: expert at mm-hmm. finding new revenue streams. Yeah. Just from the football video game alone, there's money out there waiting to be claimed.
1: Yeah, uh, we could go on, but we can't because we're out of time. Uh, A big round of applause for these spectacularly smart people.
0: That's what she said.
1: Check out our brand new ESPN podcast, ESPN Daily, hosted by Mina Kimes. Monday through Friday, she takes a look at the most interesting stories at ESPN in just 20 minutes. Listen and subscribe now to ESPN Daily, wherever you find your podcasts. And be sure to check out another great ESPN podcast, Laughter Permitted with Julie Foudy. This week, Julie talks with the legendary Robin Roberts. Download and subscribe to Laughter Permitted with Julie Fowdy right now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Julie will give you a donut if you do.
0: That's what she said.
1: It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I rant about something that bothers me, and I fix it. This week, people who don't wear costumes to costume parties. No one, and I mean absolutely no one, is too cool for a costume party. Not Beyonce. Not Michael Jordan, not Tina Fey, not even my girl Lizzo. Not too cool. No one is too cool. So if you walk into a costume party for Halloween or a birthday or whatever in your t shirt and jeans and shrug your shoulders and say you quote unquote didn't have time to put something together, you are being an irredeemable tool. One day, if I snap, it's probably going to be about this because I throw a lot of costume parties. I've got a whole closet of costumes. And I have now conditioned my friends that if they show up costumeless, there will be hell to pay. I have a variety of hats and T-shirts and things with uh, unsavory statements on them that people are forced to wear if they do not wear costumes. People have learned. Listen, this weekend, I threw a waffle costume over my clothes to go to a Stranger Things party at 1130 p.m. after a concert. On the same day, I flew back into town and I've never even seen Stranger Things. I just Googled it, and I found out that egos are a big part of the show, and I bought a damn waffle costume because I'm committed. Commitment, people, show some. All right, I feel good about what we accomplished today. Don't be a jamoke and show up to a costume party with no costume, and don't be an even bigger jamoke and skip the party altogether because you're too lame to come up with something or buy something on Amazon and get it sent to you via Prime one day later. Life is too short not to wear costumes, people. There, I fixed it.
0: Hey, Sarah, it's Stugatz. I have a dilemma. My dilemma is I'm a New York Jet fan, and normally after an 0-4 start, I would fire the coach 17 times after an 0-4 start. But for the first time in my life, I am friends with the New York Jets head coach, and I value that more than I value giving
3: my opinions, which ESPN pays me to do.
0: Help me, Sarah.
1: Ah, Stugatz. With the special bonus dilemma, this is a very easy one, Stu. Because you know who had this right already? Your boy, Mike Ryan, on your show, the Dan Levitard Show with Stu Gotts. You cannot throw your friend under the bus, and you cannot kill the great connection that you have with a head coach in the NFL. There's only 32 of them. And while he may not be an NFL coach for very long, and you are one of the reasons why, because you're starting to spread uh, the firing narrative, it doesn't matter, because he'll still be A guy that at one time was an NFL head coach, which means he'll probably work at ESPN. And won't that be awkward if you were publicly pushing for his firing? So as Mike Ryan said, you got to outsource this. You got to outsource this anger. You got to outsource this push to firearm. You got to outsource your frustration with the Jets in general. You got to act like you believe that this guy is going to get it done because he is your friend and you support him. And he has been willing to go on your podcast and text you and tell you about the team and give you inside information. And you don't want to lose that, Stugatz. I was recently in this position with David Ross, and my honest opinion was I think he'll be a good hire, but I'm just not sure. He doesn't have any experience. The guys just played with him. Will they respect him? Will they treat him as an authority figure? Does he bring enough to the table in terms of being able to get guys on the right track? But did I say that? Well, I just did. But before this, did I say that? No, because I'm friends with David Ross, and I have his cell phone number. And I can't blow that connection. And neither can you with Adam Gase. So outsource it. And as I've always said all along since the beginning, David Ross is going to be the best manager in Major League Baseball. There, I fixed it. If you got a dilemma for the commission to fix, tweet it to me at Sarah Spain or go to the iTunes or podcast app. Subscribe, rate and review. Leave the dilemma in your review and I might just fix it on a future podcast. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me.
0: Well, that's what she said.